Shabbat Shalom. We are taping this in the Gantt Chapel on Wednesday, December 6th. And dear colleagues and dear friends online, the topic for today's conversation is, in what ways has October 7th changed Jewish education? How has October 7th and the aftermath affected the project of educating our kids? And just before we do the blessing, for learning Torah together, I think the point of departure, conveniently enough, was yesterday, Tuesday, in Congress, when the president of Harvard and the president of MIT and the president of Penn were each asked, does calling for genocide against the Jews violate your school's code of conduct? And not a single one of those presidents could say simply, yes, of course calling for genocide obviously violates our school's code of conduct. Obviously it does. They couldn't say that. They hemmed and they hawed and they lawyered up and they sounded like lawyers and they sounded uh, with clauses and conditions and it depends on context. Calling for genocide does not clearly violate their code of conduct. And I bring that as obviously appalling. It's beyond appalling that calling for genocide does not violate Harvard's code of conduct. It's beyond but it's also beyond revealing of uh, the kind of atmosphere that our children, your grandchildren, your children will inherit when they go to college. There is such a thick atmosphere of Israel hatred and Israel bashing that the very statements, I stand with Israel, I love Israel, I am a Zionist, the Jewish people deserve a homeland, all those statements will get you canceled at any of the schools that our kids go to. And therefore, our kids are, are facing a world where they have to be Murano Zionists. Remember the Murano chapter when you couldn't be out as a Jew? You had to be hidden as a Jew? Now our kids are growing up in a world, inheriting this college campus, where they will have to be hidden Murano Zionists. Either they're outwardly indifferent, Israel's not my thing, I'm not connected to Israel, or hostile to Israel to get deep credit with the cool kids. The fact that they say, I am a Zionist, I believe in Israel, um, is something that is, um, will get you out of tent um, in any of the places they go. That is the resonance of the testimony of the presidents of Harvard and Penn and Yale yesterday. And we have to talk about how October 7th this new world affects how we educate our children. So on that cheery note, let's thank God for the gift of learning Torah together. Borok Atar Noi Elohim Malakolam, Asher Bacharbonum Mikoha Amim, Manatan Manuet Torato, Borok Atar Noi, Nathan Hatara. So, what I want to do is break up this conversation in halves. The first is what was the project of educating our kids like before October 7th? Like before I am a Zionist, I stand with Israel became uh, words that one would not say on a college campus. Um, what was it like to educate our kids on October 6th and the years before? And my point, and then we'll look at, at today. 
Um, but I, th- I want you to go back to October 6th. It's, it's just like so hard to imagine. This was just like eight weeks ago. But imagine a world where our kids actually felt safe to be Jewish and where they would feel safe to express their love of Israel, like a part of their Judaism is their love of Israel, and you could express that openly. And, and we now have kids, and again, pre-October 7th, where they are growing up in Newton, and they're dreaming of getting into whatever colleges they would get into, and they would bring their full selves there, and they'd bring their Jewish selves there, and their Israel selves there, and their full human selves there, what kind of world was that? And my point of departure is going to be the first text in our handout, which is by Robert Putnam and David Campbell called American Grace. It was written 13 years ago. It came out in 2010. Here is Putnam and Campbell's thesis, which is uh, why American Grace, that religion in America is very fluid. It's very fluid. Number one, people have multiple religious commitments at the same time. Like, I'm Jewish and I'm also Buddhist. I'm Jewish and I'm also Zen. Uh, I'm, right? Or, and or, they change. Um, um, and they go from one religion to the next. And or, there are multiple religions in the same family. A Jew is married to a Christian. Um, and as a result, their thesis is that there's no anti-Semitism in America. And there's no anti-religious fervor in America. Because, number one, everything is fluid, and number two, your spouse, your spouse's parents are of a different faith than yours. So I want to just read this and ask, um, is, is this still true? And if you are educating the kids in this kind of world, what does Jewish education look like? So um, I'm, I'm just going to read, read it real quick. The high rate of religious switching results in a lot of religious mixing even within the most intimate of our relationships. Indeed, your author's own families illustrate the social and familial networks that knit together people of many different religions. Neither of our stories is unusual. One of us, David Campbell, is a Mormon. He's the product of what was initially an interfaith marriage. As his Mormon mother married his mainline Protestant father, eventually his father converted to Mormonism. His mother, too, had been a convert years before. As a child, she left Catholicism to become a Mormon, along with her parents, but only some of her siblings. Consequently, a reunion on either side of the family brings together a multi-religious mix. The family tree of your other author, Robert Putnam, also encapsulates the religious churn that is so common in America. He and his sister were raised as observant Methodists in the 1950s. He converted to Judaism at marriage. He and his wife raised their two children as Jews. One child married a practicing Catholic who has since left the church and is now secular. The other child married someone with no clear religious affiliation, but who subsequently converted to Judaism. Meanwhile, Putnam's sister married a Catholic and converted to Catholicism. Her three children became devout, active evangelicals of different varieties. So this homogeneous Methodist household in mid-century America has given rise to an array of religious affiliations and non-affiliations that reflects the full gamut of American religious diversity. And here's the closer. It would be hard to rouse anti-Jewish or anti-evangelical or anti-Catholic or anti-Methodist or even anti-secular fervor in this group. Right? 
American grace. There's no hatred because we're all mixed together. Um, do you think that that continues to be the case, if it ever was the case? Um, I'm, I'm just going to look at that frame here for a moment because I think that the story, even as you posed it, is sort of more complex than the pose. Okay. First of all, the, the contention that pre-October 7th, um, we were thinking and teaching in a different way is, of course, true, and it is also not true, right? Okay. Because even last year, we were looking at and planning events and even programs and even intensive programs like getting our kids to Israel because right. we were deeply concerned about rising anti-Semitism on campus. Right. And that has been true for a number of years. Right. Um, already, um, we've been deeply concerned about um, anti-Semitism from both the right and the left. In fact, we've even talked about that here in this forum um, for, for an, an extended period of time. And so I would argue to you that the question is not um, a, a total shift in our universe, but rather a question of degree and the unleashing of factors that had been there ahead of time coming into play now. And so I think the same thing is true here with this reflection. It is 100% true. We see it every day in families here at Temple Emanuel, that there are absolutely people for whom the idea of anti-Jewish or anti-Mormon or anti-any of these religious identities would be completely unthinkable because they now know and love somebody who's a part of their family that they didn't before. And and that, did, that didn't go away on October 7th. That remains true for, for many folks. So I don't think we can say that it was a switch that was flipped everywhere, or even in our synagogue, or even with our teens, or even on college campus. Hmm. Okay. I think there's more complexity at play. Okay. Um. I think also the fact, you know, you, you, you within our congregation, you have, you know, a lot of families that have um, various religious traditions um, coming together uh, in a Jewish setting. Um, but I'm not sure that even in those settings that there's it's still not a kernel of anti-Semitism, um, even though sometimes, you know, you have, to, you have a mixed family where they could be, when you come around these specific holidays, um, the uh, you know the the, um, the grandparents, for instance, the the, the, um, the extended families on either side might feel um, you know some angst uh, in in relation to how the religious religious tensions uh, play out. Yeah, but I mean I, mean, I think um, it's so complex this, this topic. I think that we are talking about two different things. One is the anti-Jewish sentiment, and another thing is anti anti-Israeli sentiment. And my son Mikey, for example, is in Colombia. That's the best example I can do. He walks on the street all the time with kids wearing a kippah. Right. And they are absolutely, you know, free to do that. Now, if those same kids will be holding Israeli flags, you will be in trouble. So it's not about, it's not about, you know, this is more, this text to me speaks more about, you know, religion per se, not so much about Israel. Yes, but, but uh, Elias, to the extent... So I think that's a really helpful comment. Let's just get deeper. 
to the extent we have raised our kids, that we mean Temple Emanuel, has raised our kids to say that an indispensable part of your Judaism is your Zionism. Zionism is not a separate world from Judaism. Zionism is core, integral, core at the heart of the Judaism. Why? Because the Jewish people are Dat Yisrael, the religion of Israel, Am Yisrael, the people of Israel, and Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, right? We're, we're Dat Yisrael, we're Am Yisrael, we're Eretz Yisrael. The Torah of Israel and the people of Israel and the land of Israel. You know, Danny Gordis has a column, his columns recently have been troubling to me, especially about American Judaism, saying that American Judaism is, ju is just an ethical monotheism and divorced from peoplehood and divorced from the land of Israel, which he's just dead wrong on. And one of the ways he's dead wrong on it is we educate our kids that their Judaism is the Torah, and it's the people of Israel, and it's the land of Israel. Consequently, Zionism is core to their, their story. And your comment about Mikey and kids of Columbia means that, so here's the question. It, 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 it's safe to say I want to go to synagogue services on Saturday. That's fine. They don't get heat for that. Okay? But is it safe to say I'm going to Israel for December break, or I'm going to Israel to stand with Israel during the time of war? Much less so. And the question is, um, what happens to their Judaism when their love of Israel is something that they can't express without social ties? That's a real issue. I think there's also a challenge of, I've been waiting, like, whether to share this or not. Please. But I taught a class on Zionism last year for eighth graders. And the beginning of the class, the eighth graders wanted to do, uh, to put Zionism on trial. That was their idea. They didn't think that in a world where there's, in their mind, so little anti-Semitism, that there was a place for Zionism. And th those were our eighth graders. And I don't, and I don't think that that's because we didn't educate them right. I don't think that's because Zionism isn't at the core of what we do here. I just think that that's kind of the air everyone is breathing. And it's very, you know, this this piece seems to believe that if you either hold an identity close to your heart or someone that you love does, that that is a, somehow prevents you from hating. And I just don't think that's true. I think that we are all capable of self-hatred. We are all capable of hating people that we love. And it's very complex, and I don't, I don't exactly know what to do about that. I think there is a difference, and I'm just trying to piece through what's the difference October 7th, you know, October 6th, October 8th, what's the difference? In terms of how we educate our kids. In terms of how we, or, or in terms of like, what's the difference in terms of anti-Semitism on campuses? Because there is a difference, and it's just hard to piece through. Like, there is definitely a difference. By the way, difference of degree matters. I mean, Holocaust 2.0, which has been scribbled on chalk on college campuses, that's a difference of degree. No, that don't matters. Don't misunderstand. Yeah. I 100% matters. matters. We reached a point that was a flipping point. Right. Right? And and the feelings in response to that are profound and scary and and, and overwhelming right. and, and disillusioning. And, and you see, by and the way, just not to let you finish, but you see like the 45-minute uh, film about rape and atrocities, so many college students look at that and say, eh, yeah. There was a congresswoman who said, eh, rape, yeah, it happens. It just is. It's just a tool of war. It just is. The way that people say, they look at the 45-minute film of what happened, rape, murder, child decapitation, and say, yeah, it just is. Because that level, that's a difference of degree, and that's the world that our kids are inheriting. How does it make you feel to be Jewish in that world? 
and how does it make you feel to be Zionist in that world? Can we I say, we can need I, to educate I, I want to say something. Yeah. I want to say something. I think that I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. Um, I think that at least at synagogues, we do a wonderful job teaching our kids about Jewish holiness. Okay? And prayer and things related to that. I don't think we do a good job, and we haven't been doing a good job, teaching about Israel. The history of Israel, the reasons why Israel was created. I always believe, even before October 7, that our teen kids were not ready to face college anti-Israel, you know, uh, politics. Now, let, me, let me just finish. Because if, if so, they would have had the tools to face people when they say genocide. What genocide? And the Jewish kid said, oh, well, well, I, I, I don't know. But is that right? No. Well, no. We didn't provide and we don't provide a solid Israeli education. But I, I strongly disagree with that, both because I've been involved in that curriculum and in teaching Zionism and in teaching... How long? Since I've been here. In teaching early sources about how the state of Israel was formed and teaching one of my favorite things to teach them is about the War of Independence. I just learned about that today. Well, <laughs> we should talk more. <laughs> but, but also I think we don't actually know what to say. Like, I cannot tell you how many nights Solomon and I have the conversation about uh, well, I saw this on social media. My friend just posted this. What do I say? What's the right balance of correcting, engaging, trying to share with them how anti-Semitic their view is, how they're, you know, we want to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're not just blatantly, you know, uh, wanting to kill Jews and that they're not advocating for that, but also, like, what do we say? And we sit together and we think together and we work out responses together and we check it together because it feels really important on that granular level to respond to every comment that we see on social media. But that takes two grown adults working together on that. Like, I don't think it's a fair expectation to say to a 17-year-old or 18-year-old that you go to college and you know how to respond to anti-Semitism. We haven't figured it out. And so I think the best that we can do is equip our kids and acknowledge the water they're swimming in is horribly. I mean, I was just reading in the in the Times this morning about Oakland's teach-in, where they're one of the resources that they're advocating that these teachers should teach in to oppose Israel is a book, a grade school book for kindergartners, where there's a page called "I is for Antifada," where you stand up for what is good and what is right. Now, that's the world that these other kids they're going to encounter grow up. They grew up with a book that reads "I is for Antifada" for standing up for what's right. I don't know how, what we could teach our children possibly that could help them to reach a kid that's been raised to believe that Antifada means standing up for what's right. I, just I, think, I think we should begin with facts. Facts. So, uh, Elisa, as that. so right. So, and, and therefore, what? That is, that is the world. That, that's why, by the way, when, when President Gay was asked, Antifada, you know, Antifada means we kill innocent Jews in coffee houses including, like, the father who's an emergency room doctor who actually takes care of terrorists and his daughter on the eve of her wedding at Cafe Hillel, times 4,000. That's what Intifada means. Let's kill as many innocent civilians as possible. And somehow, Fadin doesn't get that, and the other presidents didn't get that. And you're right, because I is for Intifada from grade school. So how do we equip our kids to deal with it. And I, and I want to just, um, I was trying to figure out what are the tests 
that can speak to the corrosive power of that. And we don't have to double click on all of it unless you want to, but it's, it was, the, the text that came to my mind was in Dara Horn's book, People Love Their Jews. She talks about Merchant of Venice um, and, and the context uh, in England from which it came, where there was a Jew who was, uh, you know, convicted spuriously and tortured to death and, and, and in gruesome ways, etc. And that was just when Shakespeare was writing Merchant of Venice. And um, it's obviously filled with the Jew hatred of the times. And she points out that um, for whatever reason, Shakespeare gets a pass on that. And then she points out that uh, the, the Jewish scholars who call him out for anti-Semitism are, um, are considered whiny and vulgar, and that the Jewish scholars, so she writes, uh, those who thought the play was irredeemably anti-Semitic were on the consensus went vulgar and whiny, and completely coincidentally, they were also Jewish, which somehow magically invalidated their opinions on the subject. On the other hand, Jewish scholars who praised the play for its nuance were fondly and repeatedly hyperlinked. Such pieces, especially in British publications, often advertised the writer's Jewishness with the titles of a Jewish reading of. Um, and that if you took a, a contrary view, one comment attacked the article's, the, um, article's author, a lawyer with a Jewish surname, another power-hungry, mischievous attorney with an ax to grind. Um, and that so I bring that to say that I think the bullying, which begins with I is for Intifada, and continues to the president of Harvard, um, that's the world that our kids live in. And so I want to ask you and us, how do we educate our kids for that world? What, what would you say? Well, I, I think I'll actually talk about starting with facts. I think that's essential. That's one of the reasons that I feel like presenting kids with the, the truth of our history and the complexity of um, all that we've been through. When I say complexity, I don't mean that it's difficult to understand whether Israel should exist or not, because that's, I feel like uh, what's becoming the world for complexity is, you know, there's nuance. I don't know if it should or shouldn't. That's not the complexity, but but the challenge of living under the British and the challenge of fighting for the state of Israel and the challenge of all of the wars and fighting again and again and the challenge of fighting against terrorism and, and giving them space to feel the pain of the violence that has happened on both sides and that has been violence on both sides. And I think that's important because if they're going to get to a college campus and they have any shot of talking to a kid that grew up on that storybook, they have to be able to hear about Nakba and they have to be able to hear about the pain on the Palestinian side. There's no way around it. And they really need a strong core. They need to know their history. They need to be able to dispute when people are presenting uh, fairy tales or, or uh, irrelevant truths. They have to be able to dispute it. Okay, yes, thank you for that. And, not as elegant to your opinion, and, anyway, there is a famous actor, I won't name him. He said, before October 7th, an American actor, he said that he was brainwashed at Hebrew school about how wonderful Judaism is and how wonderful Israel is. And then he learned later on as an adult that Israel is committing genocide. Okay? And uh, 
that is what I'm what I'm really worried about what how we educate our kids. Yes, we have to tell them yes, I've been suffering on both ends. But yes, we have to tell them the Palestinians didn't accept the partition. The Palestinians rejected this two-state solution so many times. We have to teach them that as well. So I think, I actually think, getting back to your original question, I think that may be the biggest thing to change since October 7th, because we had programs. Like we're sending, we're connecting so deeply, especially with our high schoolers, trying to get our high schoolers to learn at Hartman. Hartman had an incredible program for our teenagers, doing exactly what Aliza just said. Right? Yeah. We got to understand. The we got to deepen not just the history stuff. on this right. side, but the history on on their side. What is the story? How do I hear it? How do right. I engage it? How do I hold it? How do I address and speak to it? And all of that. And I think post October seventh, the the thing that broke was our spirit for continuing that effort. Right. Particularly because I think one of the things that that broke, which we should name is that nobody on planet Earth, except for Joe Biden, talks about the two-state solution. Because one thing that October 7th made clear is there's no two-state I mean, the history makes clear there's no two-state solution, but the current reality made clear there's no two-state solution. And you can understand from their point of view why they won't want to deal with Israel. We understand from our point of view why we don't have a peace partner. Um, and so how do you even envision a future without, like, our national anthem is, is Hatikva, hope. And, and the, the idea, at least, of a two-state solution was always an aspiration, kind of the North Pole, that we could say yes, but we're working towards a constitution. Without that North Pole, hope, um, that's, that's another complexity. All you have is ongoing conflict. And I think we're adrift in our education because on the one hand, it is obviously true. The mission that Hartman is and has been committed to of engaging our kids so that when they get to college campuses, they have not just a response that stands, but that they're not going to be like that kid who grew up to be a famous actor who says they didn't tell me anything. A and yet, there's such profound disillusionment with the fact that Jews have been telling sort of both sides of this story. We've been working really hard to engage both sides of the story. And where has it gotten us? It's gotten to the place where the president of Harvard can't even say... Condemn genocide. Correct. Can't condemn genocide. So, um... I just want to say, I yeah, think yeah. quickly. So, the, the other... You use the word complexity a lot today, and that's true, is that our... Where we're, where we're teaching here, where we teach our kids at home, where we teach them, you know, in the, in the public schools, whatever... Um, this is being completely, not completely, but very much offset by social media. And so it's, you know, it's, it, it becomes harder to edu educate our children uh, because of what they're seeing. And we can't see everything that's going on in social media. We know what's going on, but that's going to be such a, an impactful part of, of their lives. It's something that we didn't have to deal with as kids. Right. But I think on that, that's one of the ways I think we have to really focus our education. And one of the things I would do in my class with, with uh, eighth graders is we would watch a JDP film 
to show them all of the factual inaccuracies and to show them all of the ways that that's a propaganda film and to teach them about what they should be on the lookout because it's very insidious. And if you're not very educated and you're not very on top of it, it's easy to be absorbed so, so into that narrative. Uh, can I ask you a question, which is uh, another related concern, which is this is all such a hot mess. It's depressing. It's complicated. It looks hopeless. Um, it feels like if, if I'm a 17, 18-year-old starting off at Columbia or Harvard or Tufts or Oberlin or you name the school, um, and, and it's this complicated, hot mess, depressing, no resolution, um, it feels like there's an overwhelming temptation to just kind of say, not my issue. Not my issue. Um, to kind of find some refuge in the canard that, oh, I'm just Jewish. I'm, Israel's not my thing. I don't really need Israel. I'm just Jewish. Leave me alone. And how do we deal with the, it's such a hot mess. There's such an energy to just wash your hands of it. That is, like, there's Murano Judaism. There's the JVP Judaism. JVP. There's Murano. But then there's also legitimately like, oh, who needs it? How do we engage that? Michelle, how do we engage that? I think even that is complicated, right? Because I think a number of kids, and I I happen to know and love a (laughs) college student, and, you know, I think that her love of Israel is is not what's at risk, um, but her, Mishi Baker put it really beautifully, the idea that, you know, in every moment of life that I am stepping into the breach of being the mouthpiece for Israel is, as Eliza put it, a lot to ask of, of any student anywhere in, in the world. And, um, and I think that demand on our, on our college students that at all moments of their life they be... Um, you know, at, at the barricades, um, it is is putting a p- complexity on them that this moment has um, that the pressure cooker of this moment has um, has really, I think, problematically imposed on on all of our children because pre October seventh, they. You're right. They could walk around the world and be proudly connected to Israel and and not necessarily be wrapping themselves in a flag and walking through campus. didn't affect their, their feeling. They could say, I'm going to Israel on vacation. I went with my school. This is what I learned. This is how I did. There was nuance. There was the opportunity to have conversations with colleagues and professors and friends that were thoughtful. And the challenge of this moment is that everything is either, you know, memes or, you know, shot or through a bullhorn or, um, or defensive. Or, and, and I think that defensive posture is one of the things that is the most critical for us as Jews to find our way through because we have to start actually proactively equipping our, our kids to be proud of their their Judaism and their connection to Israel, um, 
whether or not they are, you know, as, as Lishi Baker said, there are some kids who are going to be out there in the front, but we shouldn't denigrate our kids who are not the ones who are out in front but still deeply feel connected. So I want I want to close this class with an observation and then a question. Uh, the observation, what I, what I find really challenging eight and a half weeks later is um, our best teaching is hopeful and points to some blue skies. And one of the challenges with talking about the war now and educating around Israel now is that it's just so depressing and it's hard to find the blue skies. And it's hard to find the hope, and therefore, it consequently, it, I'm so glad Elisa, you're doing the sermon this Shabbos, because like when I write, when I come to write a sermon, I want to deal with the world as it is, and have something hopeful and helpful to say, because to just deal with the world as it is and have nothing hopeful or helpful to say, is not a sermon. That's that's not. People come to Shul to deal with the world as it is and get uplifted. Deal with the world as it is and get uplifted, and it's the and get uplifted part that's really hard about Israel in general, and when I think about what our 18-year-olds face, um, either because all they want to do is get into medical school, and they just want to take their science classes and leave me alone, or because they don't want to be canceled, or because for a thousand different reasons, um, it's hard to deal with that world as it is and get uplifted. So here's the question I want to end with. All of us are seasoned educators of our kids. What's your best move for helping equip our kids face the college campuses that they are facing or will face? Like, what if you had if you had to like offer um, your best idea for how to grapple with this? Uh, what would it be? I wish it would be that simple. You know, that we just can equip them with one tool or five tools and that's it, a new story and everything. A couple of uh, reflections. Um, TikTok, to me, is the way of expressing for this generation the hatred towards Jews. But in the Merchant of Eden, there was no TikTok. And antisemitism was super high. Even Shakespeare never met a Jew before. And uh, in Germany, there was no TikTok, in the Inquisition, in the you know, Crusades, everything, in the programs, in the Holocaust. So what I'm saying is that my view is different. I always had this view that antisemitism exists and will exist forever, and it's, it just needs just a switch to be turned on. October 7 created that. And... Um, and then going back to your question a little bit more, you know, it's, it's, it's about education. It's about um, teaching what we believe that is right, what our side of the story, that it's equally important as the rest of the world, that we are a minority in our opinion, and, um, and, and, and to be together with them, but they should be proud of who they are. with Elias, I think really education is so is so important. One thing I was thinking about, Wes, um, when you oftentimes will do a blessing for our general mitzvah and include, you know, the the difficulties of the world now, 
I'm wondering how much that really remains with our Newton kids. Um, it, it, to me, it, it's like a double, to me, it seems like double edge. I think that I think most of the kids it just goes whoosh. But again, you're. But I think what you're doing is you're planting a seed that at some point is going to connect with them. So I think that's really super important that you're doing that. So even even with our 12-year-olds, um, uh, I don't know what they're getting in school. I don't know what they're seeing on TikTok and other social media. But the fact that that when they're here and uh, when they're when they're, when they're poised on the cusp of adulthood that you are um, that you and you're not shying away from pointing out the, the difficulties. I think that's really super important what you're doing. So every every Shabbat, every Monday morning, every Thursday morning. That that ties into where I was going to be coming from. I think you know it's interesting. I think previous to October seventh I had a philosophy that felt I felt like it was okay to shelter kids before they were a certain age. That it that they didn't need to have the full download of anti-Semitism. They didn't need to have the whole everybody hates us. That, that actually we should have a different narrative for them, and then at a certain point expose them. And now I think, especially uh, you know, reading the curriculums that, that other children are being exposed to, it feels really essential that our kids from an early age are taught about this, both to give them a, a perspective. That I think that you have a very helpful perspective here, which is that anti-Semitism has always existed and probably will always exist. So it's not a big shock when you find it. Um, and also to recognize that there are tools that our ancestors have developed through thousands of years of oppression and challenge that will be helpful to them. And so that, that education of, of fact, that education of what reality has been, and then our prayers, God willing, that you know, they won't have to deal with anti-Semitism in the future, but that they should know it's there and be able to call a spade a spade. Yeah, thank you. I, I'm not sure that it's actually about how we educate our children. Um, I actually think it's about how we look at how the non-Jewish children in our world are being educated. And I, you know, there's been a, a rallying cry for years now that there's a problem going on in our curriculums across the country, that there's a problem in our universities about the kinds of education our children are getting about our world and especially about Israel. And and I, I feel at least an, a new rallying cry to become engaged in, in that effort myself, which had, had previously been something that I had thought, oh, you know, they're, they're, everybody's getting the full story. And I, I don't think, I mean, if, if kindergartners are getting a book that right. teaches ayahs for intifada, like right. Houston, we have a problem. So, and and right. that's I think the most important thing. So let me um, let me close with one more question uh, for you. Um, this is this is as dark as I've ever been, but this is the darkness where I'm in now, and I want to close with a question. In 2016, I learned that the Civil War never ended. Um, 2016 was just another battle in the Civil War. I feel, this is my take, and tell me if I'm too dark. I is for Intifada from Oakland. To me, tells me that the Holocaust never ended. The Holocaust did not, the Civil War didn't go from 1861 to 1865. It continued long after 1865. And the Holocaust didn't end in 1945. It was on pause for a little bit. But 
IS versus product, switching that to what, what does IS versus product tell you know four year olds in Oakland? It says there's no moral legitimacy to Israel. It says that there was never a reason for Israel to be, that it was a historic mistake, that it was a historic inequity foisted upon brown people by white people. Ayas versus Bada says we need to kill the Jews. Ayas versus Bada means the Holocaust never ended. If you thought the Holocaust ended in 1945, Ayas versus Bada says the Holocaust never ended. And so my question, is that too dark a read? Is that too dark a read? It's, a, it's, it's not about, let me just say, narrow it. It's not about anti-Semitism. It's about elimination of anti-Semitism. Ayas versus Bada, the four-year-old, is about Holocaust 2.0. By the way, that's what's happening on college campuses. That's why the president of Harvard and MIT and Stan can't condemn genocide, because too many people dig genocide against the Jews. Tell me if I'm too dark. All right. I'm going to let my colleagues uh, respond last, because I'm sure they are going to be much more optimistic than you and I. I, I thought about this always. So I agree with you 100%. Holocaust never ends. <laughs> so, I you know, I did. You know, I grew up in a different country. Uh, look, I, so did I. <laughs> so did I. I grew, the country that I grew up in is gone. The, the, the place I, my alma mater is gone. The world that I grew up in is gone. We're both immigrants when we leave. So I, I feel a little unmoored um, and, and still am working this out for myself. Um, I don't have a, an answer, a complete answer to you. But I do have an observation, which is that I was sent this morning on a WhatsApp group uh, the Harvard Gazette article about Claudine Gay's testimony. And the, the premise of it is Harvard president stands up strongly against anti-Semitism. And the Harvard Gazette's <laughs> reports on what we all saw were that the narrative is she's standing up strongly against anti-Semitism. And so I, I think... <laughs> To me, right, I think that we are so far from the repair that it's easy to feel despair. And it's easy to feel like not only are these horrible things going on, but people aren't even seeing it, right? The narrative or out they're there, digging it. Or they're, or they're happy they're about it, it. And, and, and approving, and, and it's so disconcerting and it's so discombobulating and how how do you engage that and right if there's one lesson of the Hanukkah season that we're coming upon right it's that the that we don't have to live always in the certainty that the Holocaust is forever we have to be mindful that there are those instances but there are um, many, many moments in our history where there is a triumph of justice and there's a triumph of hope and there's a triumph of possibility. And lo alecha hamlecha likmor velo asat ben shirin mikva. Tell me, Mena, you, it's, it's not yours to finish that task, but you also have to keep believing in that. I was right. I should have gone first. <laughs> not by might and not by power. No, but do, do you have an answer, Mr. But by spirit alone. No, I think really that's that's our challenge is to is to grapple with we don't have the might and we don't have the power to solve this, but we do have the faith that will get us through. Amen. Thank you.